Ruth chapter 4 is where we're at today. If you're new with us and uh, came in and found one of these cards on the seat where you're seated, it's a connection card. On one side of that's a place for prayer requests. If there are things that we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do so. Uh, we pray here publicly in services, but also want to pray privately, uh, carry those burdens alongside of you uh, that you're carrying in prayer. Uh, also, there's a place for a little information about yourself, so we can send you some information about us as a church, answer any questions you have and connect with you. You can drop those cards in the box at the kiosk in the back of the room on the way out. Uh, Ruth chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. We're kind of wrapping up the book of Ruth together this week and next week. Uh, we'll open Advent by closing Ruth. Um, but this weekend we're in verses 11 to 17. I'll catch you up to where we are really briefly. Um, chapter 1 in the book of Ruth opened with famine, death, and loss. And Naomi, the, one of the main characters returning back to her hometown of Bethlehem, having been emptied of everything. Emptied of her husband, emptied of her sons, emptied of her family, emptied of her hope, emptied of her future. And she comes back very embittered toward God because he had dealt bitterly with her. But there is one ray of light in that chapter. And it's a young lady named Ruth who clings to her and comes back with her, one of her daughters-in-law who returns with her from the land of Moab. And so the two ladies had a problem. They had problems, uh, a couple of problems. One, food, and the other was family. And so in chapter two, the question of food gets answered as Ruth goes out to glean and finds grace in the eyes of a man named Boaz. Uh, chapter two, chapter three, the question is, where's family going to come from? Now, Boaz is one of Naomi's deceased husband's near kinsmen, and so Naomi has this plan to scheme to get Ruth and Boaz connected because Boaz was kind of dragging his feet a little bit in her perspective, and so she's going to kind of force the issue a little bit and sends Ruth down to the threshing floor all dolled up and ready for a night on the town. Um, Boaz is very upstanding in his character and, and upright in the way that he treats her commits himself to her. She asks for, says, listen, I'm available for marriage. If you want to spread your wings over me and be the provision and protection that God has ordained for me, I'm open to that. And so he says, I will, but there's a problem. I'm not in the first position of redemption. I'm in the second position. There's somebody who's nearer than I am. And so I've got to work this out legally. And so that's where we found ourselves last week at the beginning of Ruth chapter four. And Boaz shows up at the city gate where all the business was transacted and legal proceedings took place. Um, and he runs down the situation because the nearer kinsman whose name in the text is Mr. What's-His-Face, um, that's literally his name in Hebrew, um, it's, it's a Hebrew idiom called, and it basically is roughly translated Mr. So-and-So, I prefer Mr. What's-His-Face, uh, but Mr. What's-His-Face shows up, happens to show up because life doesn't happen as a series of accidents, but appointments, and so he's there at the city gate, and Boaz presents the situation to him and runs down the issue of the land that needed to stay within the clan, and so he presents to the nearer kinsman and says, hey, redeem this land. The kinsman thinks about it for a moment. Mr. What's-His-Face says, I'll redeem it. And then he says, oh, by the way, I can't believe I left out this little detail of the lady, right? So there's a lady involved in this thing too because you need to raise up offspring for the deceased man's, um, the deceased man's wife on, the, on his land so his name isn't erased from Israel's history. At that moment, the kinsman says, that's a little more than I bargained for. I'll cede my position to you. You are now in first position. You can redeem the land and marry the lady. And Boaz commits himself to do so. And all the witnesses of the town um, erupt in blessing and praise at this occasion. And so that's where we pick up in Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And we're going to read down through verse 17 together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there. If not, turn in your Bible Find 4.11, and that's where we're going to pick up, all right? Verse 11 begins this way. It says, um, i got to find it. That's, that's pretty bad, isn't it? 
Yeah. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, last week we said there's any good movie, any good story, any good book, any good play, we always want the loose ends to be tied up, don't we? We don't like dangling endings, right? Because it's not like choose your own adventure type thing where you go pick your own ending and how you want the story to work its way out. And the author of the book of Ruth ties up the loose endings here for us in Ruth chapter four. And there's a couple of threads that are running throughout this book. We saw last week that things don't happen by accident, but by appointment and not to see the those things as distractions but God's direction we also saw last week that Boaz was one of the threads running through his life was this is that he honored the name of God above all other things and so he was first about God's name before his own before he had he before he could establish a reputation for himself he wanted to establish a reputation for God and wanted God's name and fame and renown to shine and not his now there's two other threads here in chapter four that we want to tie up together this week and they run through the lives of Naomi and Ruth And we're going to start with Naomi and then finish with Ruth. And what we learn from the life of Naomi throughout this book, from beginning to end, from open to close, is this, is that God fills the empty. God fills the empty. Now listen, in in, in 1774, I've referred to this hymn several times, William Cooper, um, he wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I've referred to it several times throughout this series, but I haven't commented on this particular verse, and so this is fresh stuff, all right? Um, but this, this is what he says in one of those verses. He, say, he writes these words, he says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread, they're big with mercy and shall break, and blessings on your head. I want you to think about a day before television, a day before radio, a day before weathermen, a day before S-band or Doppler radar, a day before weather channel or AccuWeather apps on your phone that you could pull up and check the surroundings. If you saw storm clouds building on the horizon and they were, those thunderheads were beginning to brew off to the horizon. They began to move steadily towards you. Oftentimes your heart would erupt into fear because you didn't know the extent of the storm. You didn't know exactly what was gonna, about to fall out of the heavens on to you. You didn't know if it was just a rain shower. You didn't know if it was gonna be a thunderstorm. You didn't know if it would be full of lightning strikes. You didn't know if it was gonna have hail. If so, how big and how much? You didn't know if there was gonna be a tornado wrapped in all of that wind and rain. You didn't know if there was gonna be straight line winds that would damage your house, your property, yourself. You didn't know if there would be floods that would sweep you away. You didn't know any of those things. 
1774, right? You don't pull up weatherchannel.com on your phone and go, it's just a shower. Or there's a tornado alert, right? There's a tornado watch. You couldn't see any of that before. And so it would strike fear into the hearts of people. And Cooper says, you fearful saints, take heart, fresh courage take. The clouds that you dread so much that you see forming on the horizon. Because he understands that life sometimes is like that horizon. You see storms coming sometimes. Sometimes you see them moving in from a great distance. You see choices that people are making around you. You see things that are happening and unfolding, whether it be in global affairs or personal affairs. You see storms building and brewing and moving towards you. Other times, you wake up in the morning and they just kind of are there, right? They overtake you. You get a phone call in the middle of the night or something takes place. And he says, those storms that you dread so much, those clouds that cause so much fear and uncertainty, he says, I want you to know something, that they're about to break because they're full of mercy, God's mercy, even in the midst of the storm, and they're gonna shower blessings on your head. I experienced this back just not long after my wife and I got married. We were married for nine months, and I was serving as an interim student pastor at First Baptist Church in Pineville, Louisiana. Probably never heard of it, may never hear of it again, but that's where we were, in Pineville, Louisiana. Um, and as I was serving as an interim student pastor there for about nine months, investing my life into the lives of those students and the lives of those adult leaders and raising up students, I had, man, those adults were so patient with me, right? I was, I was, I was really wet behind the ears, okay? Uh, trying to lead men and women who were much older than I was, but I was investing in them, casting vision, discipling kids, seeing kids come to faith and being baptized. It was an incredible season of ministry. And so I thought, man, we, we, Karen and I both, we, we envisioned our lives there. We envisioned our lives in that community. We envisioned our lives with those people and in that place. And so I submitted my resume as, a, as to be considered for the full-time student pastor position there. And out of the hundreds of resumes, you, you, you might be astonished by that, that First Baptist Pineville got hundreds of resumes for their student pastor position. You don't know what that's like. Uh, but, but so out of the hundred resumes they received, they narrowed it down to myself and one other gentleman, one other man. And so through the pro we went through the process with them, interviewed with the search committee, even though I already knew all of them. Some on the search committee were kids in the student ministry I was leading at the time. It was this really kind of weird process for us. But as, we, as, as they narrowed it down, me and one other guy, the, the pastor of the church, who was the lead pastor, he invited my wife and I to lunch one Sunday after church. It was the Sunday I was scheduled to take our kids, the kids that we were discipling and raising, the student kids, uh, to the youth evangelism conference that Sunday afternoon. That Sunday for lunch, we went out to lunch with his wife, he and his wife at Johnny Carino's, right? there in Alexandria, Louisiana. And he sat down across the table and as, as, as lunch is finishing up and we're putting our pasta away, he says, I just, I just I wanted to let you know that the search committee has narrowed down, uh, all the, gone through all the process and they've, made a, they've come to a conclusion and a decision and they've decided to hire the other guy. And in that moment, in that mo like, like, I'm, like everything's clear and shiny and all of a sudden storm clouds burst and lightning begins to flash and thunder begins to roar and rain begins to fall and wind begins to blow. And in that moment, there was, there was fear in my heart because the life that we had envisioned for ourselves was now beginning to erode. It was now beginning to wash away. It was rolling down the hills with all the sediment and dirt. And then I had to put on a smiley, happy face and go hang out with students 
in the ministry that I was leading that I wasn't gonna be leading any longer because they were hiring somebody else. But I couldn't tell them anything. I couldn't speak to any of the adults about it, any adult leaders or any of the kids because they hadn't made a public announcement yet. It was a really difficult season. I was going, God, why? And all I can imagine is this life that, once, that I dreamed of a fullness now was just, it was an empty void. You ever been there? I think lots of us have. But looking back on that occasion, even, even two years removed from that experience at Johnny Carino's, I saw the blessings that were breaking, the merciful clouds that were emptying on us that day. Two years after that fateful dinner at Johnny Carino's and the transition of that ministry into the leadership of someone else, um, he was a good man, faithful man, but the church itself had lots of issues and the church went through a really nasty split. And God, through his providence, removed us from that situation to protect us from uh, that, the nastiness of that split and even more greater uncertainty. In addition, he used that to move me to Dallas, Texas to go to Dallas Seminary where it took me eight years to get a four-year degree. Just a little slow like that, right? And so I went through school there. I got my education there, was trained in ministry there, cut my teeth in other areas, was on staff at a mega church, which really shaped a lot of my view of who the church was and how it should operate and how it should function. Peeled back some layers for me, right? All those, none of those things would have happened. People that I met along the way, lifelong friendships that were forged, all because storm clouds rolled in on my, uh, uh, not long after my 24th birthday. And listen, that's, that's how God works. The clouds that you dread so much oftentimes are filled with mercy and God will shower blessings. Now, I haven't shown you that in the text yet. Let me show it to you. Because I'm not making this stuff up. In chapter one of the story, you remember when Naomi comes back from Moab she comes back bereft, having lost her husband and son. She comes back broken. She comes back bitter toward God. She says, the Lord, I, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant one. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. That's how she comes back to Bethlehem from Moab. She had buried her husband. She had buried her two sons. Uh, she, she saw no hope, no future. She was empty and she attributed, listen, she attributed all that emptiness to God. He brought me back empty. He brought me back broken. He brought me back embittered. All that she attributed to God because Naomi knew enough about theology and the sovereignty of God to know that there was nothing outside of God's purview. There was nothing outside of God's authority. There was nothing beyond God's control. She knew enough theologically about God to say those things. She could affirm the theology and the sovereignty of God, but what she doubted was the character of God. That God could turn even her most bitter experiences into blessings. She doubted the character of God, so she saw no way around this in the rawness of her human emotion. She saw in which, no way in which her life would turn around, no way in which she would have a future, no way in which she would have a hope. But even, listen, even through all that brokenness that she experienced, what God was doing is he was laying the foundation for her blessing. 
He was laying the foundation for her blessing because you fast forward to Ruth chapter four and pick up in the story where we just read. Listen, one of the things that I love in this story is this, is when she comes back in chapter one and says, hey, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara because I'm, I've, God has dealt with me bitterly. The women, it's like the women look at him like, we ain't gonna call you that mess, right? We're not gonna, you try to change your name, but we're not gonna refer to you as Mara. We're gonna keep calling you Naomi. How do I know that? Because that's who she's, that's what she's called throughout the rest of the story. And that's how she goes down in history. Nobody else is like, hey, Mara, come over for dinner. They keep calling her Naomi. Because she had people in her life who had enough faith to believe for her, even when she struggled to believe for herself in those moments. They continued to believe for her and press forward. And now in chapter four, listen, in chapter one, Naomi spoke to the women. In chapter four, the women are gonna speak to her. And listen to what they say. They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then they drop down in verse 17 to say, a son has been born to Naomi. And they name the child Obed. They name him Obed. Listen. Some of you are like, Naomi didn't give birth to no child. Ruth gave birth to a child. What's going on there? Why has a son been born to Naomi? Here's what's happening. In that day, in that culture, it wasn't about the nuclear family. It was about the generations. See, in our day and time, it's like you got a nuclear family that lives here, and then they got your mom and two kids, mom and dad and two kids, or three kids, or some of you are real fruitful and fertile, four or five kids, right? So you got all these kids in the home, and mom and dad, and then out, then, 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 then over across town or another state away, you got grandma and grandpa, and then great grandma and grandpa over here in the nursing home, and like you got all these, these places. But in their day and time, there was like family compounds, right? And so you had three or four generations under one roof. And so as the men and women would age, the younger generations would care for them as they aged. And they would, the older generations would care for the babies as they were born. So there's a very real sense in which into Naomi's family, this child has been born, now she has a son. And what God was doing is what had been stripped away from her in Moab and the death of Chilion and Malon, he was now putting back into her arms and this young boy named Obed. All the emptiness that she'd experienced in Moab, he was now beginning to fill again in Bethlehem. Because he's able to fill those who are empty. He blesses, he brings blessing out of brokenness. So oftentimes we look, at, look, at, look up at the heavens and say, God, why are you stripping me down and tearing me down? And the reason God is doing that is not because he's against you, but because he's for you and he wants to build you up. That's the reality of the the theme that you see running throughout the Bible over and over and over and over again. See, in a world, what you see in the stories, in a world that opens in chapter one that was characterized by famine and sterility or infertility and death, now at the end of the story, you have life and you have birth and you have fruitfulness. God takes those who are empty and he fills them. Look, in the birth of this son named Obed, you know what his name means? His name means servant or worshiper. Right? The one who was in service of God, but also he would serve his grandmother as she aged. And listen, the women clarify these two ways in which she would, he would serve her. That he would be a restorer to her of life and that he would be a nourisher of her old age. 
Now listen, when we read that in our English text, it's, it doesn't, it's not real clear to us what's going on. But if you get underneath into the Hebrew, here's what you see, is that the same word for restorer in f- chapter four is the same word that's used over and over and over again in chapter one, right? It's 15 to 17 times in chapter one, the word for return or to go back. In fact, the, one of the most significant places it's used in chapter one is in verse, chapter one, verse 21, where Naomi says to the women, the Lord has what? Brought me back empty. If you literally translated that from the Hebrew, it would be the Lord has returned to me empty. And that word shows up again in chapter four here under restorer. And if you were reading this in the original language, all of a sudden these bells and whistles and lights would start going off in your mind as you saw that everything that she lost in Moab, she was emptied of in Moab, she was being filled with in Bethlehem. God returned her empty from Moab and is now returning life to her here in Bethlehem through the birth of this child. The excitement, you know what it's like to give birth to a child, many of you, women, some of you have seen your grandchildren born or your children born and you see them come, come out and there's excitement and there's life and there's vitality, right? And there's celebration, especially for the ladies who have been carrying that little dude or that little chick for nine months in the womb and going to the bathroom constantly, right? I, I get it. There's a celebration that takes place there. There's a fullness of life that blossoms And that's how Obed would serve Naomi because he would return to her the life that she lost in Moab. But he would also be a nourisher. And that word literally in Hebrew means this, means to supply. He would care for her in her old age. He would supply for her in her old age. As she was too old to manage the fields, he would manage them. As she was too old to go get water, he would bring it to her to drink. He would care for her as she aged as things that used to be black or brown turn gray, (laughs) as things that used to be tight, the skin on the face now gets saggy and wrinkled, he would supply for her. God was filling her emptiness. And notice how he says, notice how he says, the the, the author says he would do it, or has done it, because your daughter-in-law who is more to you than seven sons. And the reason we're not just weeping whenever we read that is because we're not an Eastern culture in which family is everything. It's everything, right? Not career, it's not career first, right? It's it's not hobbies first. It's family first in Eastern culture. And he says, your daughter-in-law, and sons were always more valuable in Eastern cultures than daughters because they could perpetuate the name of the family and carry it forward. But he says that not only, or the author says, or the women say, actually, the women say, not only is Ruth better to you than, than, than seven children, but seven sons. And not only is she better, she's, she's a daughter-in-law, not even a, a child that's come out of your own womb but one that's come from another family into yours. And she's better to you than seven sons. And what the the women are saying is this, and the author wants us to understand, is that God is filling her emptiness by providing for her something better than she could conceive of for herself. 
Because in ancient Israel, seven sons was just an expression or an idiom for the perfect and complete family. And those women are looking at Naomi and saying, this daughter-in-law of yours, the one who's shown you chesed, the one who has shown you kindness, the one who's been loyal to you and loving to you, the one who's cared for you, she's better to you than the perfect and complete family that you can conceive of for yourself. He's saying your, your little broken and blended family right here, right, is better than the image that you had of marrying your high school sweetheart, having kids, raising kids, them growing up, going to school, getting good jobs, right, going to work, um, having kids of their own, being grandparents close enough to care for them and not too close to where you're constantly being called, right, but being, having a relationship with those, in the lives of those kids, Right? Seeing those generations perpetuated and grow and flourish and then on your deathbed having your family there surrounding you to love and care for you and nurture you. He's saying your little broken and blended family is better than the ideal vision of family that you can conceive of because God was filling her emptiness. He was bringing blessing out of all of her brokenness. He was building up what had been torn down in Moab. Now, before, before I press this into life a little bit, here's what I want to say. In the text, there is no indication, the author gives us no indication that before God breaks forth with the clouds of mercy that rain down on Naomi's head, there is no indication that her heart or disposition toward God had softened or changed. She was excited about the prospect of perhaps a marriage between Ruth and Boaz, right? And perhaps provision and protection going forward into her future. But there was no, there was no, nowhere does she say, blessed be the Lord. The women are saying, blessed be the Lord. There's no indication that her heart, her disposition, her hardness toward God had changed. But God in his grace showered mercy upon her even in her hardness, even in her embitteredness. And I want you to know that's good news, church. Because that's the way God continues to work. Because God doesn't wait for you, your heart and disposition toward him to change before he says, let me bless you. Let me fill you. But so often, it's the filling of God and the blessing of God that changes our disposition and heart toward him. Because then we begin to see him as a loving father who cares for his kids and we trust his character. And that's what's going on here. God indeed fills the empty. Over and over again in the Bible, God bless, breaks to bless, he tears up to build down, he empties to fill. And so here's what I wanna say to you this morning is do not underestimate the power of God's grace to heal and restore and redeem all that you feel like the locusts have eaten in your life. Do not underestimate the power of God's grace. Some of us in the room, whether it be at a very young age or as we became more seasoned saints, have had massive amounts of trauma 
Massive amounts of heartache, massive amounts of pain, massive amounts of uncertainty. We've seen the storm clouds building on the horizon and we have felt their eruption in our lives. But do not underestimate God's power, the power of God's grace to heal, restore, and redeem. Do not underestimate it, church. When, you, when we do, here's what happens. Even though we have massive need, we refuse to come to God to find the healing because we don't trust his character. Some of you have experienced massive hemorrhaging in your marriages. You've experienced massive hemorrhaging with your children. You've experienced massive hemorrhaging in your vocations. You've experienced massive hemorrhaging in life because you had a vision of what fullness and flourishing was gonna look like and it got stripped away sometimes in a moment and sometimes over the course of time. But do not underestimate the power of God's grace to heal that and come to him. Don't run from him but come to him in all your rawness and all of your emotion and lay your heart bare before God and see if he would not begin to rebuild it See if he would not begin to restore it. See if he would not begin to redeem all the pain, all the hardship, all the heartache that maybe you caused for yourself or maybe by your own choices or that was brought to your life by the choices of others. Because he's able to fill those who are empty. Second thing in this text this morning, and then we're gonna have some food in here. Second thing is this. God, the second thread that we see in this text is God makes foreigners into family. He makes foreigners into family. This is a beautiful story, isn't it? The thread running through the life of Ruth in chapter one. Verse four, when we meet Ruth, we're told that she is a Moabite by birth who married one of Naomi's sons. It's not until chapter four that we discover that was Malon that she was married to. And although in chapter one, she takes covenant language on our lips when she says, your people should be my people and your God, my God, is Ruth's conversion experience. In other words, I identify more with the people of God and Yahweh and his presence than I do with my gods and my people. So I'm going with you, Naomi. I'm clinging to you and I'm clinging to Yahweh. And even though she takes that covenant language on her lips throughout the story, I want you to consider something. She is consistently referred to on almost every occasion in which she is mentioned as Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite, she's a foreigner. In 122, she is Ruth the Moabite returning with Naomi to Bethlehem. In 2.2, she is Ruth the Moabite who is speaking to Naomi about going out into the fields to glean. In 2.6, on the lips of the foreman of Boaz's field, she is Ruth the young Moabite woman who came home with Naomi from Moab. In 2.21, she is Ruth the Moabite who is reporting back to Naomi her first interaction there with Boaz. In 4.5, it is Ruth the Moabite that Boaz says Mr. What's-His-Face would acquire as a wife the day that he redeems the land. In 4.10, it is Ruth the Moabite that Boaz has acquired as a wife. Over and over again in the story, she is referred to as Ruth the Moabite, in other words, a foreigner. Someone who was a stranger to God's covenant of promise. But not only was she referred to as a Moab, were Moabites foreigners, but they also had very sketchy origins and a very pagan past. 
Consider their history in the Old Testament. The Moabites originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Right, that was their origins. At one point in their history, their king Balak hired a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. You can read that story in Numbers 22 to 24. In Numbers 25, the women of Moab, right, the, the women of Moab and the men of Israel weren't supposed to be together, but the men of Israel just really liked the women of Moab, right? And the women of Moab seduced the men of Israel to, into worshiping false gods in Numbers 25. In the days of the judges, in Judges chapter three, the king of Moab, Eglon, had oppressed the Israelites. In a in addition, the law prohibited the Israelites from taking husbands and wives from among the foreigner, foreign people. That would have been extended to the Moabites, for their, they couldn't take husbands or wives for their sons and daughters in Deuteronomy 7. And the Moabites in Deuteronomy 23 were prohibited from being named among the generations, from among the people of God, up to 10 generations removed from where those bloodlines got crossed. So that even the most, the, the, the most detailed Ancestry.com, right, would have a hard time finding the fact that there was Moabite blood there, right? You couldn't name them among the people of Israel. So listen, this is not like somebody from Texas marrying somebody from Oklahoma. Uh, well, maybe some of your families, it might be that way. Right? This is, this is, this is something prohibited by God's law. To, to, to prevent God's people from being enticed and drawn away into the worship of other gods. But it's against this backdrop, listen, against that backdrop of understanding that you read verse 11 of chapter four. And listen to what it says. It says, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now, if you were reading that as one of the original audience members, you would stop at that moment and be like, what? This Moabitess, like Rachel and Leah? Two of the greatest women in Israel's history, the, 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 the wives of Jacob, through whom Rachel and Leah and their two hand servants would come the 12 tribes, that God would make Ruth like them? that out of her womb would come that kind of significance, that in her life would be that kind of legacy and that kind of story that would be remembered like the matriarchs of Israel? That's crazy. That's what the original audience would be thinking. And so the, the question then becomes this, like how, how is it that it's so clear throughout the scriptures Right? That this was prohibited by God's law. Why would they be seemingly blessing this? Why would they be blessing this? And here's why. It was in order to show the purpose of God's grace by grafting a foreigner into the family. And I want you to know that it had always been God's purpose. Always been God's purpose. In Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three, when God calls Abraham, to listen to what he says to him. He says, now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred to your father's house and to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed depending on your translation." See, in other words, when God says, you are mine, Abram, I'm gonna make a great people out of you, you'll be my possession, 
right? You're going to be my inheritance. This is going to be a great nation, but it's not just for you, Abraham, but it's so that all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that through you, I would bless them. And then you get to Exodus chapter 19 after they come out of Egypt and before they go into the promised land, right before they receive the commandments. And listen to what God says to them through Moses in Exodus chapter 19, verses five and six. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God says, you'll be a nation that's set apart for me and my purposes. But he doesn't say you will be a kingdom that has some priest because every kingdom and every religion had priests that mediated the relationship between God, that God and his people. He doesn't say you'll be a kingdom that has priests, but you'll be a kingdom of priests. In other words, you would be a distinct, separate, holy nation set apart from me to shine and show the glory of my name to all the peoples of the earth and mediate relationship between me and all the inhabitants of the world. That would be your function, a kingdom of priests. God's heart has always been to graft foreigners into the family. It's always been that. And subsequent to the coming of Jesus Christ, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, some of you lived through 1 Peter for about 10 months with us a couple of years ago, and you survived, but I'm going to come back to it here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, listen to what he says. But you are a chosen race, speaking of the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You... Once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those separated from God by their sin, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says what was true about Israel in the Old Testament has now come to fullness and fruition in the church in the New Testament. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You're a people from my own treasured possession set apart from my purposes and that your conduct might be exemplary among those uh, uh, exemplary among those who do not know God so that on the day in which I visit that they would give me glory by joining in the throng of praise of my grace. That's always been God's purpose, to take foreigners and turn them into family. And so if you and I are not to underestimate the power of God's grace to bring healing out of whatever hurt you've experienced and blessing out of whatever brokenness you have been through, we're also not to underestimate saving gracious purposes of God as well. And one of the things that means for you and I is this, is that there, we, sh- we, we cannot, as the church, draw boundary lines around anyone and say they are beyond God's reach. They are beyond God's reach. I mean, have you seen how they live? 
Have you seen how they speak, how they talk? Have you seen their values and priorities? Have you seen how they treat their family? They, surely, surely there's gotta be some, some boundaries there. But one of the things this text, one of the things this text teaches us, this story teaches us is this, is there's, we have no right to draw a boundary and say, we're in, they're out, and they're beyond the reach of the grace and saving purposes of God. See, I think oftentimes we forget that we too were born as foreigners. I don't care what home you were born in. I don't care how many times you went to church and children's choir, right? If you went to a GAs, Awanas, RAs, whatever, all those things, right? You went through confession and you went through confirmation. Whatever, whatever hoops you, religious hoops you jumped through as a child, I want you to know that none of that has merit or standing before God because you and I both were born as foreigners. We were born as foreigners. And listen, <laughs> I still haven't gotten over the fact that as one who was born as a foreigner to God's covenants of promise, that God saw fit to reach into a family, into a family that did not know him, was not walking with him, uh, had, 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 had no indications of fruitfulness in their life, of knowing and loving Jesus, reached into a family and grabbed this pubescent, pimple-faced, porn-infatuated kid and said, you are mine. You are mine. And the fact that he, for whatever reason, I still haven't figured it out, would set a desire for ministry in my heart and then try and begin to position me in places and among people to serve and minister. It's not lost on me that I wasn't born as a part of the family by natural birth, but it was only by new birth that I became a part of this family. And the same is true for you. Have you forgotten that? Or is that still fresh on your mind? Does it still resonate in your heart and make you sing? Man, I hope it does. Because personally what it means is that you and I are now set forth as ambassadors for Jesus in our spheres and circles and our places and positions. That we now have an opportunity to be representatives of Christ and the redemptive work he's able to do in our life by snatching someone out of death and bringing them to life and taking them from emptiness into fullness. We now have that privilege and responsibility to be a kingdom of priests. Mediating relationship, bringing other people into the family. Personally, are there people in your life, let me ask you, let's get real practical. Are there people in your life you just stop praying for because you go there, they're just so far gone. Are there people in your life that you've given up on? I'm not saying that you just go around enabling people to kind of continue to make poor choices and decisions, but are there people that you've given up on and say, they are beyond the scope of God's grace? What does it mean for you personally? Listen, it also has something to say to us corporately. Because we as a church, see, it's not just you as an individual are this representative, but we as a church are a representative. 
as a church. And listen, one of the things that we need to consider as a church moving from 2017 into 2018 is this. Is, will, it, will it always be the responsibility of paid staff and high capacity volunteers to be outward facing and develop outward facing opportunities to connect with people in our community? Or will we as a body begin to take that on for ourselves? Will we as life groups begin to say, how is it that we can reach this neighborhood that God has placed us in and these people that we live among and around? Listen, it's great that we can gather in homes and have deep fellowship and, and connection and talk through the scriptures together. But what if, what if we begin to develop outward facing opportunities to bring more foreigners into the family? Some of you are like, that's great. They can show up here on Sundays. They can get saved and then filter in to the life groups. Listen, that may happen with some people, but with other people, they want to belong before they believe. They want to know that there's somebody that's willing to be inclusive because Jesus is really exclusive. There's, it's only him, there is no other way. Let me be really clear about that. But that exclusivity should promote a massive inclusivity in our lives of bringing all kinds of people into, our, in, into fellowship with us to be a light into the darkness, to be salt. Will we corporately as a body take those things on and say, you know what, every, every couple of months we're going to roll a grill out in the front yard as a life group and we're going to grill some burgers grill some hot dogs invite family uh, friends down the street to come over because we want to see more foreigners become family because that's always been God's purpose from the beginning now listen these two threads that run through Naomi's life and Ruth's life that God fills the empty and he turns foreigners into family listen they run through their lives but they don't run they don't terminate in their lives because they run through their lives to another. They run through their lives to one of their long removed ancestors. Because it's through this family line and through this lineage that would come Jesus Christ. In fact, Ruth is included in the genealogy in Matthew's gospel. And in Jesus Christ, listen church, I want you to hear this. In Jesus Christ, what you see is you see God emptying someone to the point of death so they might fill him through the resurrection and then fill multitudes from every nation with himself. In fact, in, in Luke chapter one, I want you to hear what Mary says as she erupts in song knowing now that she is carrying the very son of God in her womb. And listen to what she says. In Luke chapter one, verse 51, he, she speaks, speaking of God, she says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There is this paradox in the person of Jesus by which those who come to him full are sent away empty and those who come to him empty are sent away full. Those who come to him proud are humbled and those who come to him humbled are exalted. There is that paradox in him and it's through him that he would fill the, the longings of every human heart and every desire. Because see, sometimes in our stories, we don't always see the outworking like Naomi does. We're not always sitting there in the town square with a baby on our lap and everybody's singing blessings. But there are times where in the midst of our circumstances, God fills us with himself. 
because of his son. But not only that, it's through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that God turns all kinds of foreigners into family. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And we'll close with this. He says, Therefore remember that at that time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made with flesh by hands. Remember, remember church, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then in verse 13, one of the biggest buts in all the Bible, B-U-T, by the way, (laughs) and this is what it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus has come to take those who are empty and fill them and to take those who are far off and bring them close. And this morning we celebrate that together because that work he has accomplished, Paul says, by his blood. So this morning as we come to the table, we invite you to come and receive the bread and the cup. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, whether you're a member of this church or not, we wanna invite you to come. Like if, if, if you're not a Christian in the room, we just want to invite you to, to, to participate by watching as we come and take of the bread and the cup. But if you're a Christian, we want to invite you to come and take of the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive the, the re- remembrance of our Lord's body that was broken and his blood that was shed so that you might be filled and brought near. So let me pray for us, and then Brian and the band are going to come and lead us, and we're going to take the Lord's table together. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Your grace that stretched beyond all kinds of boundaries and barriers to make foreigners into family. God, that you've done that in my life, that you've done that in the lives of many in this room. God, you've done that in the lives of thousands upon thousands of people from every nation and tribe and tongue across the globe. But God, may we never lose the heartbeat that is close to your heart as a church of wanting to see more foreigners become family. Wanting to see them grafted in And Father, for those who are here this morning, God, who perhaps have been in the midst of a a massive storm breaking in their life, God, may you let them know that you, your aim, your goal, you're working, God, to bring blessing out of the brokenness. You're working to bring fullness out of their emptiness. We thank you that you've sent your son to fill all those who are hungry with good things. May we come humbly this morning to the table and receive his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. We pray it in Jesus' name.